This episode is sponsored by Fire and Fuel Coaching, where I help you discover who you are and where you want to go, both on and off the job. For more information, please reach out to me at my Instagram handle at Jerry Fire and Fuel. Welcome to today's episode of Enduring the Badge Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Dean Lund. And if you haven't already done so, please take out your phone and hit that subscribe button. I don't want you to miss an upcoming episode. And hey, while your phone's out, please give us a rating and review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on, such as iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. It helps this podcast grow. And the reason why, when this gets positive ratings and reviews, those platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify show this to other people that never listened to this podcast before. And that allows our podcast to grow and make a more of an impact in other people's lives. So if you would do that, I would appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. My very special guest today is Deborah Green. Deborah is a retired dispatcher who served 20 plus years as a dispatcher. She also served in the military, and we're going to talk about when she served in the military. She went down to the LA riots and how it was a conflict of being a military personnel and engaging in other Americans because that's not really what they were trained to do in the military. And then we're going to go back to Deborah's dispatching career and what took place in her career and how she ended up with severe PTSD and what she has done with that and why she is on the podcast and she is trying to help others understand what you need to do for your mental health so you don't end up in a place where you don't want to be or be forced to medically retire. Now let's jump right into this episode with my very special guest. How are you doing, Deborah? I'm wonderful. Good, good. I'm so happy to have you on and share your story. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deborah, you kind of have a, a unique story, and so we're going to kind of go through maybe the beginning of that story. And that started, would, it, would you say, back in your military career or before uh, that? Yeah, 1986, when I joined the military as a young 19-year-old. <laughs> um I went into communications because I was technically too short to be a military police officer like I wanted to at the time. But they told me if you go into some one thing, then once you're in, then you can transfer and change your MOS once you're in. So that's what I did. I went into communications and then military police. So that kind of gave me the um, the base of, you know, where I eventually ended up as a dispatcher, I guess. Um, uh, 1992, we went to the LA riots, which was very interesting. Um, yeah. rolling into that, I was just thinking about that this morning, you know, um, this actually listening to your podcast from, uh, one of the guys that was from Long Beach PD. Oh, okay. That's yeah. Where, that's where we went to was Long Beach right at the beginning. And, uh, driving down and seeing your own people attacking each other it was just kind of i i think going into a war zone in another country is less stressful yeah than going into an active i guess riot zone you would call it sure um so we went into long beach the first thing and there was a working fire on just about every single block as we're rolling in to to help quell the riots at that time and um, that was the first time I'd ever been shot at. First Whoa. and only time I've ever been shot at. 
<laughs> so that was quite interesting. And um, and kind of rolling back a little, um, at the time when LA riots happened, I was also in the academy to become a dispatcher with Sacramento Police Department. Okay. So I was doing that and then got called down to there. And when I came back, I was a little behind all my academy mates, but, uh, you know, ended up graduating with them. It's good. Got all caught up. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the riots a little bit. I've had a few guests on that have been involved in the riots back then. And, you know, like you were saying, uh, you know, going into a zone like that per se of your, and what right, you say, you're like your own people, right. Our own American citizens going at it with each, with each other is got to be something completely different than what you train for in the military. Well, when you're in the military, they train you to go after a specific enemy. Mm-hmm. So we trained kind of with more World War II kind of. So, you know, we had the the German soldier targets and the Japanese targets. And so you, you're trained to look at a different uniform than yeah. what you have. So when you go into a civil disturbance you don't know who's the enemy and who's not or not the enemy the aggressors i would say more the aggressors um because they're really not your enemy but they're your own people and you don't know who who's the good guy who's the bad guy and it was it was it was very stressful yeah yeah would you would you compare it to maybe some of the things that you've seen maybe a few years back well yeah uh you know um 2020 i mean all this pandemic stuff and the george floyd uh disturbances and you know you just don't know who even now you know with the republicans and democrats it's like (laughs) you know it just we don't know who who's who's good who's bad who's who's gonna cause us problems you know so i kind of you know kind of keep my (laughs) even keel and just keep my head low (laughs) so when you're at the at the riots and you got shot at, did you see who was shooting at you? No, um, it came from the top of a building, which was um, somebody had gotten to, we were in um, near the mall in downtown uh, Long Beach and uh, we had some cover, but we were, uh, you know, they had some, not skyscrapers, but taller buildings there. So once that happened, that we must've had four or five helicopters over the top of these buildings looking for, who did it and uh never did find the person but boy i tell you that was scary and at the time we didn't have we had our m16s with us but we didn't have ammunition to put into the m16s to be able to protect ourselves Ah. um and being military police we did have our sidearms our 45s but you know you're not supposed to use those if you can help it right right (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't know where it was coming from. And yeah, it was just scary deal. Yeah, I'm sure you were under like very strict guidelines on what you could do and when you could use your weapons and protect right. yourself. Yeah, uh, lots of rules of engagement. So, you know, keep your keep your 45 on your hip unless absolutely necessary. So, you know, I, that's what we did. But yeah, having no ammunition in the M16s, it was kind of stupid. What are we going to, you know, what am I going to do with this thing? Am I going to throw it at somebody? <laughs> you know, use it like a like baseball a bat. Or baseball yeah. bat. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have to, I guess you got to do what you got to do. But yeah, that would be that would be interesting, interesting situation to go into and under you know, very different engagement rules than what you were trained to do with your military yeah, training. Definitely, definitely. And then I ended up, um, so after Long Beach, we went into downtown LA and we became, um, our company did the protection detail, detail for Parker Center, which was the at the time the headquarters for LIPD. And uh, that was kind of fun. And then they they all voted me, since I was going to dispatcher school, <laughs> they voted <laughs> me to go in and be, the dispatcher, and for those who didn't see that, it's air quotes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the dispatcher for the company, and just doing the the welfare checks on everybody and make sure everybody was where they were supposed to be, and and all of that. So that was that was kind of cool. Yeah, you got to use some of your your skills that you were training on. Yeah, absolutely, it was fun. The only thing that was kind of different was um um. Sorry, you're good. <laughs> Somebody is texting me, and it's popping up <laughs> on my my screen here. Um, the 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 only thing different is the the phonetic alphabet. So trying to go from military to civilian was kind of difficult. And um, you know, when I was dispatching with the PD, I would get confused. And oh so yeah. <laughs> they all let me know it when you know you'd hear an Oscar instead of an ocean. <laughs> so it was quite funny. Yeah, you know, got to do got to do things a little bit differently. You know, just thinking about like being shot at, that had to be kind of like left a mark on you for you know, yeah, in, yeah. in your thoughts um, for a long um, time. Um well, and that and it was kind of interesting because we had so right after that we had like a formation um we were I forget what we were doing and somebody dropped their sidearm <laughs> and oh. it went off so you know we were you watch everybody just hit the ground um that was kind of interesting too but yeah it, it kind of um it sets that tone it gives kind of gives you that what what we now know is a trigger for a trauma and yeah. uh so yeah gunshots are not not one of my favorite things anymore right right i can understand that so do you think you know being in like the riots and doing your dispatching or being in the military police and stuff like that helped you become a better dispatcher? I think so, because I understood what was going on on the street. Also, um, a lot of the guys, um, I, I guess when, when I became that seasoned dispatcher and I would tell people that what I used to do, then they understood why I did certain things for them, you know? Because yeah. I understood what they needed at the time. You know, you're screaming down the road. You need me to give the information as, as you know, as much as you can. And I need to be that 10 steps ahead of you. Right. As you're yeah. driving to your call. <laughs> right, right. I think that extra added perspective is definitely um, something that makes, a, you know, for a great dispatcher. But not a lot of dispatchers get that opportunity to be able to get out in the field and spend very much time just you know, to gain that perspective. I know well, they and, try to. Yeah. And, you know, I always suggest, you know, take advantage of those ride alongs, you know, whether they're on your days off or if they like our department would pay us. So it would be during our shift that we would go on the ride along with, so we could see what, and, and get to know our team a little better. Yeah. 
Do you think having that perspective of what was going on maybe out there in the field and being a dispatcher, was it more stressful or less stressful knowing? Um, I, I think it was less stressful, you know, um, it gave me the opportunity to, so when, when you come from being on the street and doing thing, actually doing things and then going to a spot where you have no control over what's going <laughs> on, going out and seeing that was kind of like, it relieved kind of like that, that urge to get out on the street again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think our minds, you know, when you're hearing something, I, w- I would imagine just even, you know, when it, responding to a fire or responding to different calls, like what we're imagining from what you're telling us or is maybe completely different than what we, what we see. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, what was that, that quote from the, the show house? Everybody lies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Everybody, you know, I mean, what they're telling us may not be exactly what's going on and, you know, but we do our best to, to get that information out there and let them know what exactly is going on. Um, I did have an opportunity during a ride along, which not many people get this one. So the night I was going on a ride along, I didn't go down right away. So I stayed up in dispatch for about an hour. I took a call. I entered the call. I dispatched the call, then left, got in the car to the car that I dispatched to that (laughs) call. And we went on that call. So I got to see the whole process, which was not many people get to see that. <laughs> right, right. Now, did you paint yourself the right picture from what they gave you? Um, pretty much, you know. Good. But you still don't imagine what their houses look like or or things like that when you get there. But you know, you do your best. <laughs> yeah, I think dispatching would be incredibly hard. Um, just painting a picture in my mind from what the details are are given. Um, would probably um, that'd wear on me for sure. For sure. Yeah. Especially yeah. over and over, like, you know, the busy dispatch center without catching a break. Well, luckily I, I was in a, um, my, my second dispatch job was in a rural County. So we went from, um, the East side of Sacramento all the way to the Nevada state line. So we had a lot of national forest and urban, uh, we had urban plus a lot of rural. Yeah. So you know, we had soup to nuts and we did search and rescues and, you know, snow plows and <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff that people don't know dispatchers probably do. Yes. Yes. My, my, I liked working storm nights because I got to dispatch DOT. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were fun. <laughs> How long did you stay in the in the military, by the way? Um, I was in the military six years and that overlapped with my um, civilian jobs. So um, uh, that last year, 1992, was when I um, overlapped with my civilian uh, law enforcement career. And then I was 11 months with Sacramento Police and then got hired on with El Dorado County, where I retired from. Yeah, let's. I mean, so that was a a long career in dispatching, which comes with a a heavy toll, right? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, when you go in and 
you have all these priority calls that you come in, you're listening to people get stabbed, you're listening to people on their worst days, you know, someone calling that their father's just been shot and killed in front of them um, to, you know, the two-year-old that that calls 911 by accident and you're trying to get mommy on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have all these little these little things that build up and build up and build up. Plus, and it's not just the phone, you're working on the radio, so you're dealing with officer-involved shootings and the aftermath of murders and other, uh, you know, pursuits and things like that, that that can traumatize you also. So, That's... you know, it just gets stacked up one on top of the other until, you know, you reach, like I did, that, that final straw. And... Yeah. I, you know, something I didn't really, I don't know why I didn't really think of this before, <laughs> is like, yeah, you're right. You're dealing with the phone side of things and then the dispatching side of things. So those are two very different worlds, I think. And I've, I'd, for some reason, until you said that, I just have never thought about that being that's two different types of, you know, call taking and writing, you know, you're talking to someone who's calling in for 911 and then dispatching. That's, you know, those are, those are kind of different things, different yes, people you're dealing very with. Much so, so, you know, as a, as the radio dispatcher, you're trying to get as much information from the call taker as you can um, in our small uh, department. We did double duty sometimes. So there were times where, I was on the phone with that person while I'm radio dispatching. Um, so you're trying to get as much information to the deputies as possible while they're on their way to their call and trying to get any question that they're having answered. So, you know, you have the, the lag and um, just trying to do your best to keep them safe on the street. You know, that's, you know, my job was to send everybody home at the end of the day. Yeah. What and yourself, right? And myself, yes. <laughs> Try to get home. <laughs> you know, my first officer involved shooting. I did not know that the uh, officer was alive or dead until the next day. And so I'm driving myself home after shift, crying, and I'm going, I'm going to kill somebody out here. I can't see the road in front yeah. of me because I'm crying. So, you know, I want to make sure I'm getting home and, and, and that I'm okay for the next day. And sometimes that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's really hard, right? To have a hard dispatching day. And then just to like, you you have to get up and go right back to work. Yes. And I did about 19 years on graveyard. So I was coming home. So I, I was, I had a reverse commute, I guess you would call it. Yeah. <laughs> That could be good. <laughs> well, everybody's going to work. I'm going home. And, uh, but it takes a toll on your body and your mind. And, and especially if you can't sleep, you know, right. you're doing that turnaround. Um, we work 12 hour shifts. So I was doing, I had an hour commute home, which a lot of people don't have, which was, looking back was probably good. Because I had that time to decompress and listen to the loud music or listen to nothing or listen to the news or or whatever in the days before podcasts. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but then you get home and you're trying to relax to get to sleep. And 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 it. It when you have depression and anxiety and not knowing it, it's it's hard to do that. It's hard to get a good night's sleep, especially during the day. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. That's I props to those that continue to work graveyards and stuff. And <laughs> cause yeah, that's a unique individual for one that can do it for a long time. And I think it takes a significant toll on your body. Do you think maybe that's maybe working nights and not sleeping and stuff like that led to some of your depression and anxiety? Oh, that, um, Absolutely. And, you know, a graveyard shift, it's not the same as day shift. Day shift, I felt like I was a county operator, you know, and where do I go for this? And where do I go for this? And there wasn't really a lot of um, priority calls. When you're on nights, you get the shootings, you get the stabbings, you get the pursuits, you get, and that's what I liked. But then um, because we were a rural county, um, for the first couple years, it was like at 11 o'clock, all the street, all the sidewalks rolled up and everybody went to bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had a few hours that were kind of down, which was nice. And you could talk to your coworkers and get a lot of that stuff out. Um, but yeah, it takes a toll, toll on your body. I ended up with uh, uh, high blood pressure and hypertension and uh, eventually diabetes. And yeah. So, you know, it does take that toll. Yeah, those are not, unfortunately, <laughs> uncommon things for first responders to struggle with um, with their health. Yes. You know, when it's, once again, that sleep thing is just so important, but it's it's so difficult to get and so hard to prioritize for so many to, to do that. Well, had I known what I know now, so being retired, it gives me a little bit of an advantage. I can go to the doctor now and uh, get <laughs> get a lot of things fixed. But I was um, a couple months ago, I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. So now I'm on a CPAP machine. And let me tell you what, I, I suggest everybody just go get one and sleep with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best sleep I've gotten in years. Oh, that's awesome. So, I, I just can't imagine myself because I'm like toss and turn all night long, like probably hundreds of times tossing and turning. I would have a wrestling match going on with that mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I, I did the same thing, but once you get into that, it gets you into that sleep. You don't toss and turn as much because you're relaxed and because you're getting that rest. That's yeah, a good point. Good point. So, so how did you like discover that you had depression and anxiety? Well, um, back in 2015, um, I had, I had lost like 50, 60 pounds in 2014, uh, along with my husband. And I said, okay, I, I should go into the doctor and, and we'll, we'll do our, our yearly physical. And she said, oh, by the way, you haven't had an echocardiogram in a while. Let's go do that. Um, because I was diagnosed with a heart murmur when I was born. Okay. So we knew this was going on and this wasn't an unusual thing for me to have. So I went in, got that done. And then I get a call saying, um, cardiology wants to talk to you. And I went, okay. Found out that, um, I had a uticusp aortic valve in severe stenosis with a one quarter inch opening on it. Now, oh. mind you, an aortic valve is, is one inch. <laughs> Yeah. So um we go in and by April 20 April 20th of 2015 I had my open heart surgery for an aortic valve replacement. And as an after effect of that what I found out is very common for 
people have been put on the bypass machine to develop depression, anxiety within that first year after. Well, when it does that, it amplifies anything that you've had prior to that that you didn't realize you really had. So I went into crisis. And luckily, I had some fabulous coworkers that had an intervention with me, gave me a phone number for EAP and said, go get yourself some help. And so that's what I did. And I um, started out in therapy um, late 2015, early 2016. Did, it, did you notice it starting to help or how, how soon did you notice? Well, like- I, you know, you go in and it's, you're, you're in denial. I don't have these problems. <laughs> I'm no, no, no. We'll, we'll get this fixed in a couple weeks. No big deal. Uh, no. <laughs> so I went without medications for um, almost a year. And then when I went in to see my GP and I was just sobbing, When I went in to see her, she just sat there and said, okay, here, go take these. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been on uh, Lexapro for for almost six years now. um, And it's really, really helped. That's Um, good. It's evened me out. I'm not, but I, you know, I'm still in therapy and I have been since then. And I've been, I go to, I do various support groups and things like that to help out um from 2017 to 2019 i was in a weekly support group through my um hmo which was great you know and in person and we can go and talk and it really helped it really got got me evened out there and then they they stopped that so i went for a few months without it and then i had my my horrific incident but because I I had still been seeing my therapist, but not going to a support group. And so I knew what to do when, when I had my major trauma. Yeah. So, do you mind? Can we talk about that? No, that's perfectly fine. Um, I was uh, April 23rd, 2019. And uh, I had an officer involved shooting that resulted in my deputy's death. Um, we sent them out. We had a call for uh, somebody in a grow, like a suspicious subject in a, in someone's grow. And here in California, you can have up to 12 plants um, on your personal property. And um, so that's what we thought was going on. Um, and they went out there and it was actually the cartel, one of, two of the cartel people out there um, that had made a deal with the guy. So the grow was a lot larger than we thought it was. It ended up being over a hundred plants and they were there to collect after he had told them no. So we're going into a hostile environment, not knowing it's a hostile environment. And they came under, under fire. And he, my one deputy was the one that was killed. And um, we had two other deputies and a ride along on scene also. And the ride along happened to be a deputy sheriff from another County. So he was armed also, which was, Thank God he was there. Um, yeah, he he probably saved the lives of my other two deputies. Yeah, um, that would that'd be extremely hard to <laughs> in in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, I'm sure you're probably close to that person, um, probably well, been working with him for a while. Oh my gosh, yeah. And my last ride along that I ever did was with him. And then uh 
about two and a half hours prior to that incident, I, he had come in late because that was his shift. He came in late that, that night and we were downstairs talking. So I was the last one to see him before he went out on patrol. So, you know, it hits a little harder that way, you know, and, and, and he was a really nice guy and has, has a great family. And, you know, I just, um, the guilt I had not being able to send him a home just tore me up for, for a very long time. I would imagine, would imagine. Did you have to dispatch during that incident? Yeah, too? I was the radio dispatcher. So I dispatched them to the call and, um, after I dispatched him to the call, it was kind of interesting. You had, I, I don't know if anybody on, on the street gets it, but we call it dispatcher spidey sense. <laughs> that you know something's up, but you're not quite can't put your finger on it. But there's something going on. And I, um, it was a two unit call, but I ended up sending three. And the sergeant had called up also saying, hey, did you, you know, you need to send three. And I went, I got three going on. No, we're, we're good. And then I went on a break. So, it, you know, it was break time. So, yeah. you know, you don't think of anything. And then I get this, this text as I'm coming back to the room. Uh, you need to get back here now. And so I'm running down the hall to get in there. And um, yeah, so we heard the the shots. I heard the shots that probably killed him and uh, uh as we're going through the call um we couldn't get a hold of him at all but then uh you know 15 minutes later i hear that they had got him out of the area and put him on an ambulance so when you have that happen you go okay he'll be fine yeah <laughs> he's in that ambulance he's going to the hospital he will be fine and while at the hospital, they pronounced him and somebody that was not Sheriff's Department staff posted on Facebook that a deputy had been killed. So that um, the lieutenant that was at the hospital at the time called us immediately at dispatch to let us know because, you know, we have all the people. Uh, look at the little Facebook posts and everything that, that's sure. going on in the neighborhood to see, make sure everybody's getting the right information. And the, he didn't want us reading that on somebody's post. So um, we were, we were told unconventionally and that's about when I broke down. So I was dispatching through tears <laughs> the the rest of the evening, but not letting the guys know that were out there still trying to do their job and get these suspects, not letting them know that the worst had happened. Yeah. That would be so hard. It was, it was very hard to, I had a chaplain standing behind me for some of this and she just goes, how are you doing that? And I said, it's gotta be done. They can't know until the very end. Yeah. You know, when, when we get that, that second suspect because at the time we had gotten one um when we got that second suspect then it was like okay now i can now we can all relax and get to what what needs to be done and 
So as as soon as that second suspect was arrested, my relief was right behind me. And I just said, okay, it's yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. I, I got asked, what did you do after? Like I after I after I gave her the radio and gave her I mean, she had been there for 20, 30 minutes, so she knew exactly what was going on. Um um, after I relinquished, um, I walked down the hall into the stairwell and just sat and cried just to get it out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would imagine that there was probably a lot of that and a lot of that needed to be done because holding that together for 20, 30 minutes and shoving that down is. Well, actually, it was <laughs> holding it together for about two hours. <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and because it took a, a long time to uh, get that, that second guy. And, you know, there was a lot of coordinated efforts from, from air support and our SWAT guys on the ground. And, um, you know, I am, I was extremely thankful for my, the, the air support that we had uh, through highway patrol. They were just amazing. It And that was, was that your last call that you dispatched or um, no, I did go back to work for a year. Um, but, uh, between an abusive supervisor and having a trauma and trying to deal with that, that I ended up going out on workman's comp, uh, October, 2020, um, uh, October, 2020. So also to having this trauma happen and then going into COVID lockdowns was that kind of even accentuated mm-hmm. the trauma i don't know how to explain that but you're you're stuck you want to go out you want to see your friends you want to go be able to go you know take a drive or whatever but now you're stuck inside yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's you want to maybe go out and like free free up those emotions and stuff. And now you're, yeah, now you're, once again, you're probably feeling like you're suppressing them because well, you can't get out. Exactly. And then, you know, you're only seeing the, uh, my therapist every six weeks. So, you know, I'm going to work and seeing a therapist every six weeks. It's not helping, you know, the medication, even though I'm on the meds, you still have to do treatment. You know, I mean, that yeah. that's part of it. You take your pills and you, go to therapy and you do all this, but no amount of classes or anything like that, that they can give you, you know, whether it's mental health classes, depression, whatever, it's not the same. And it's not the same as being able to go out and say, take a hike out in the middle of the woods and um, get out in the fresh air. You know, I did as much as I could with what I was given, but you know, it it just didn't didn't pan out, but luckily I had another supervisor who saw the she was going to school to become a therapist actually, and she saw all the signs and so she pulled me in her office and had me do the uh, workman's comp stuff and got me the help I needed. And how difficult was that to do? Um, actually, it was a big relief okay. that somebody said. Hey, I see what you're going through. Here's how we're going to help you. Rather than what uh, my direct supervisor was doing was writing me up for everything that I did. You know, when you're going through a trauma, you have a lot of anger. You have a lot of 
other things yeah. going on and writing people up for um it, it's not good <laughs> it's compounding right it's compounding it, it, issue yeah exactly and now i'm on a uh a performance improvement plan and it's like i've been here almost 26 years what do you mean a performance improvement plan because yeah. i've had it you know i mean just it was you know i looked at her the wrong way and i i got written up so you know it was uh you know didn't help having that type of supervisor along with it but luckily there were people there that that cared and got me the help that i needed and um the peer support team even uh was able to get me a, a scholarship to a trauma retreat, oh, which nice. was really nice. So yeah. I attended one of those also after I was out. Yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts when it comes to, you know, going through something like that and then having a supervisor um, taking action, maybe the way they did in compounding things. I, I, that's just horrible to go through. Well, and and. How many, how many other departments are having this happen to somebody? You know what I mean? Uh, Probably every just, one of them. Yeah. So, you know, we have to look at the big picture, what this employee is going through, too, along with, you know, their basic trauma and how are they being treated? And, you know, are we getting them the help that they need? So, it, yeah, <laughs> I, I find it, isn't it just, or shouldn't it be easier just to find people the help they need instead of, taking other actions at least try to give the person the help they need first oh gosh yeah you know let's let's you know and maybe she thought because i had gone to therapy and i was you know i i was actively going to therapy that okay that's fine but you know there's other things when a person has trauma that they don't realize that they're doing yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. maybe it's you know turning around and just telling somebody to, to <laughs> shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think I might have an anger thing? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it is definitely like you say is not uncommon is the the anger um you know when you go have these type of critical incidents or have you know going through trauma or PTSD or different things like that. Anger is is pretty big, and I would say for first responder world, huge. Huge. <laughs> huge. It's probably compared to other people. It's I I don't know statistically, but I would imagine it's probably a lot higher. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and um, I was the one at, out of the four of us that survived this um, incident. That I was the one who lasted the longest at the job. So one of the deputies never came back to work. Um, Actually, two of them never came back to work. The one from the other county never was able to go back to work either. Um, And unfortunately, his circumstances, uh, yeah, he wasn't able to do workman's comp, I don't think. Because he was was, on a ride along or something. It was kind of difficult. So it he finally was able to retire and then another one, he would come back. He came back after six weeks, came back for a little bit, would go out, come back again, go back out. And he finally retired just before I did. And then I was 
Um, so I was signed off of work, off of work in October 2020, and my retirement uh, went through in June of 2021. So I was off on workman's comp for yeah for, quite for a, a while. while there. Yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine that was probably tough to uh, navigate with workers' comp going through something like that, even today, right? When we know that um, these issues with mental health are are happening to individuals the the workers comp system i don't know if it's the same across the nation but in california they don't know how to deal with a mental health issue yeah um usually you just you know because i've done both i've done an actual medical workman's comp uh for my carpal tunnel and then i did the the other for my my mental health and Going in on the first one, you just go in and see a doctor. They look at you. They say, okay, and, you know, we'll do all these tests and and get you fixed and not a problem. And, okay, there you go. And then for the mental health, you call them up and they go, well, we really can't do workman's comp through this the way you did it before. <laughs> I'm like... Okay, what what do we do? <laughs> Give me some sort yeah. of direction here. Because a physical injury is a lot easier to maybe diagnose and spot than maybe absolutely for them mental health wise. I mean, yeah. there's still quite a few ways that you can diagnose things with mental health stuff, but I mean, it's just less less apparent, I guess. Yeah. So I had to go to. I don't even know if this psychiatrist was. <laughs> She might have had a con. I don't know how they they got a hold of her, but she was okay. But you know, as far as directing me towards treatment, there wasn't much. You know, I wasn't happy with how I was treated by the whole system. Um, and finally ended up getting an attorney. Oops, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Uh oh. Yeah, I'm still here. Hello. You got me? We got oh. frozen here. Okay. It should be. You back? I could sort of. I, you, you're frozen in. Oh. Aha. I'm back. You still there? Yes. You still have me? <laughs> Uh, yeah, now you're on low bandwidth, so oh, okay. kind of moving slow. Okay, I can still hear you okay on, on my end. Okay, sounds good. Okay, where were we? Um, mental health, yeah, she yeah. did <laughs> do real well. And, <laughs> you know, I, I learned down the road um, how to, that EMDR and um, is pretty helpful. Uh, I did brain spotting. Which is similar to EMDR without the uh, the light. Uh-huh. The um she did uh this this woman was fantastic. She took me into a panic attack just by me moving my eyes, kept me there and brought me down out of it. And let me tell you what, I felt fabulous for a month. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so, I'm very unfamiliar uh, with that type of therapy. 
Yeah, it's it's I it's similar to eye movement. So she has like what I call a magic wand <laughs> and uh-huh. it has like a little <laughs> silver ball on the end and yeah. she kind of moves it and she goes, follow the ball. And then, you know, as I'm talking and following this, you know, I went into a complete, you know, almost shut down panic attack. And she just we sat there and we, she goes, don't move your eyes. Keep them right there. Don't move your head. And we talked and walked, walked myself down out of it. And, you know, it creates those, those new pathways in there that, that help you cope with, with all that you're, you're going through. So it was amazing. (laughs) Have you done it since or just. I've done it twice. Um, Unfortunately, it's out of pocket for me. I'm trying to get my HMO to um, get me into EMDR um, because you know, it is, it is a trauma and we need to be able to do something besides sit there and, and do CBT. Right. Because <laughs> that's with this portion of the brain, your frontal portion of your brain. Right. That's you not where the trauma get, is. It's back here. <laughs> you need to get back in there and yeah. you know, get those little pathways going again. And uh, so um, I'm trying to figure out a way, a way to do that right now. Um but with the the time I have, and I'm actually doing really good. I st- um actually started on a CBN CBD treatment to help with my dreams, and that's actually helped with my sleep along with the CPAP. And I am feeling really good right now. So, you know, it just it's amazing um, what sleep does. <laughs> it is. It's just amazing. But, you know, had I known this a couple years ago, maybe I could have survived and and actually retired at the retirement date I was looking at, which was yeah. next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's still a long service. And I, I thank you for that long service. That is not easy to do, you know, no. that long in you know, dispatchers. I don't think really should go any longer than the frontline people. That's just my personal opinion. Cause right. You're going through a lot of the same type of traumas just in a little, you know, just in a different manner. Right. You know, you're listening to the trauma rather than actually being there and seeing the trauma yeah. or, or experiencing the trauma. So, you know, it, and what I find is a lot of departments forget about us, you know, they take it for granted. Oh, Take it for you're granted. Just the girls, you're fine. You didn't, you know, you weren't out there. You didn't see this. Well, we heard it. Yeah. <laughs> and we need a resolution. And when you hear somebody screaming for help and you can't do anything about it, it creates a trauma. Yeah. So how many times are we going through that? You know? Yeah. And- that is that is one one thing for me too is is the that kind of like triggers me a little bit is the screaming. I just you know that screaming of when you're going on calls and someone's lost a loved one or something, yeah. and that that type of scream there's just that haunts will haunt you or haunts me for forever. I just don't, oh. I don't like the screaming at all. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, you, the, you, and you can tell the difference between the angry screaming at you sure. and that, that just forlorn agonizing yeah. other scream that, that happens. So yeah, it's, it's very traumatic, but yeah, they don't, don't ever remember 
a lot of it seems like a lot of the first responders they focus on those guys out on the street and there's so much more to that first response team Mm -hmm. that needs that needs to that needs help too (laughs) yeah i just recently uh taught a peer support class for a group of 12 dispatchers for their their peer support team which is awesome awesome. they were all in the same class together and they're you know just building their team and i think it was awesome to see so many dispatchers in that in that class that i was teaching to to help each other right that's kind of our first line of help Oh, gosh, yeah. And and that's what needs to happen is all these peer support teams need to have dispatchers in them. Um, ours are, we had a manager that wasn't, wasn't the best in the world. And he only allowed one um, dispatcher to be on peer support. When the department said we need as many as we can, he was yeah. very, no, you can only have one. And it's like, why? You know, and that one person that the, he had was an abusive supervisor. So who's going to go to her for peer support? Nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have to go find one of the officers. And that's probably not the best for you as well, a dispatcher to do or. Being in a smaller department, we um, we built a lot of, uh, fam- you know, we built our family. Yeah. So it was easy to go to a deputy and talk to them with us um but you know you want somebody that knows i mean they don't know what i'm going through sitting (laughs) in that chair um i know what they're going through but only because i had the experience but having more than one person being peer support in your in your little group is is so much better because you know you know there's so many dynamics and clicks and friendships mm-hmm. and and whatnot that go on that you know you want somebody that you can trust yeah yeah i totally agree with you Deborah. <laughs> like what recommendations do you have for the listeners out there to maybe <sighs> for the for their mental health you know or maybe s- something you would encourage them to do if you're first starting out and this goes for everybody fire street cops dispatchers nurses Get a therapist when you start. You may not think you need it, but developing that relationship with a good therapist and find a good therapist, one that one that clicks with you, one that knows law enforcement or mili- even a military, somebody that works with military is good for first responders. Um, but get that get that therapist so that you can develop that relationship and know what tools you can use to cope with some of these things you know we're we're sending these well kids now Mm -hmm. (laughs) into these situations and they don't have the tools that they need to for their mental health and we need to have that that needs to be part of academies across the nation i i i I 100 agree (laughs) with you um you know, I, I, that's what I recommended for some of the newer people that started around me. I told them like, if you, 
even if you don't think something's bothering you, there probably is something bothering you or going to have something bother you. So just get started early <laughs> and just make it, like you said, make it just part of your wellness, personal wellness program. Absolutely. You know, go in and learn, go in and take these classes and get into a support group just to talk and build relationships and find out, you know, and find out who your peer support people are in your department, you know, yeah. and, and get, uh, you know, I, I had one person that I would go to all the time and, um, it helps to have that check-in, have that buddy check-in, um, have, have, and, and develop relationships so that other people, when they see something in you can, and they feel comfortable enough to come into you and saying, Hey, you got something wrong with you. We need to get you some help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I I don't think we have to look too far in the past to see that we know we need to do this because if we look at what happened in the last couple of wars that we've been involved in, oh that we gosh. know that this is a problem. And so we like, we're kind of like, I mean, we're not, in law enforcement and police fire and all these other things. Yeah. We're not in the military, but they're still experiencing a lot of trauma that they're not Absolutely. prepared for. My, my mother's cousin um, was in the Navy during Vietnam and he saw a lot of things and he came home and everybody said, Oh, don't talk to him. Yeah. That's not, we don't, we don't talk about that. Well, I come to find out years later when, you know, I'm, maybe about 10 years ago, I had talked to him and he said, I wanted to talk. Nobody would talk to me, but then everybody else is saying, don't talk to him. We don't want to hear about it, you know, but he needed to talk about it and developed all these health issues because he couldn't talk about it. Right. So, you know, if we start talking and start creating that atmosphere where it's okay to have depression, it's okay to have anxiety as long as you're getting help for it, you know, and yeah. be able to see the signs in other people, um, yeah. you know, and maybe then we can stop losing people after critical incidents. Um, we can stop some of these suicides that are happening and, you know, and have a healthier first responder community. Right. And when we have a healthier first responder community, we have a healthier community that's being served. Uh, Absolutely. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. I know those were hard stories to share, um, but I do appreciate you sharing them. Um, I think they're very impactful and you've uh, given a lot of uh, knowledge, or, you know, about your past experiences that I think will help, you know, the listeners. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't. I know. I always say, don't you, you do, you don't hope. So you do, you did, you did do it. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you.